You're listening to the Sojourn Montrose podcast. For more sermons and content, visit sojournmontrose.org. Okay, before we jump into Proverbs 15, let me just, again, set up the book of Proverbs for us for a moment. Because I think even if we just looked at the verses that we kind of jumped around a bit, what we can begin to realize is that Proverbs is somewhat of a difficult read. And, and, and here's why. Um, the Proverbs are really just, they're a collection of sayings. And so uh, sometimes they're placed in an order that makes sense. Sometimes they're not. Sometimes you find yourself reading verse 16 and 17 before you read verses 1 through 4, right? Sometimes you find another verse that's totally and perfectly applicable in chapter 18 instead of chapter 15. And so uh, what we need to know is that while, while maybe in other texts that gets a little bit difficult, in the Proverbs it's entirely appropriate. What we're doing is we're looking at this collection of sayings that has been assembled by and in many cases authored by King Solomon of Israel, the son of David, that we're looking for themes, that we're looking for themes within them and that they've been given to us as short little morsels of wisdom and truth so that we might better internalize them so that we might better recall them. Not many of us are going to remember Ephesians 1 through 3 that tells us all about the grace of God to us through Jesus and that we are now empowered by the Spirit to carry out amongst the brethren. But some of us might be able to remember that it's better to have a dinner of herbs where love is than a fattened calf where hatred is. Now, why should we listen to, to King Solomon? The simple answer is it's in the Bible, but I think that 1 Kings gives us actually a really compelling reason even beyond that. That even if maybe we don't believe the Bible wholly is true, which, which we believe, but you might not, right? This is still a good reason to give Solomon a hearing. This is what 1 Kings says. 1 Kings is a historical book rewriting for us the history of that day. And in chapter 4, it tells us this about Solomon. God gave Solomon wisdom and understanding beyond measure and breadth of mind like the sand on the seashore so that Solomon's wisdom surpassed the wisdom of all the people, all the people of the east and all the wisdom of Egypt. For he was wiser than all other men and his fame was in all the surrounding nations. So Solomon was wise The Bible states that that's because God has given him wisdom, but this is a wisdom that's not only attested to by the Bible, but that internationally is recognized. That Solomon had fame in all of the nations for his unusual amount of wisdom. And again, let's be reminded though, that this wisdom within Solomon is not a wisdom that he has conjured up through many years of annotating and thinking through life, but rather it's a wisdom that has been given to him by God himself. So the source of wisdom is not Solomon, rather it's God. And so here in the Proverbs, what we have put on display for us is God-given wisdom. And so let's be very clear in understanding that the Proverbs are not just pithy moral sayings, but that they fall within the stream of God's covenant grace to us. 
that the book of Proverbs is essentially a primer on how to practically live within this covenant of love that God has given us with himself. That wisdom is the exercise of that covenant. And so if that's the case, then we can go into the Proverbs with a sense of confidence much like or very similar to, if not the same as, we would approach a book like Romans or any other book in the collected canon. Now, before we jump into talking about gentleness, the topic itself, we have to do some, a little bit of reverse engineering. Because I think if we divorce, if we divorce the, the, the practice of what Proverbs is going to encourage us to from its source, then, then we're going to struggle to actually walk in it with any kind of peace. We'll simply be working again out of our own abilities. So this is what Proverbs chapter 1 says. It's the thesis statement of the whole book. It says, The fear of the Lord is the beginning of knowledge. Fools despise wisdom and instruction. This is where all of the sayings of Proverbs begin. If you wanted to, you could read each individual saying with that in front of it. That the beginning of knowledge is the fear of the Lord. Fill in the blank. And so there's no knowledge, there is no wisdom apart from the fear of the Lord. Now, let's not get bogged down in the word fear, right? Fear is less uh, run to my room and hide right, from Leatherface, so much as it is Texas Chainsaw Massacre, anybody? Okay. Everyone's like, I don't watch that filth. Um, (laughs) So much as it is a reverent awe, a reverent fear of, of God's awesome power, of the fact that when He speaks, light comes into being. When He speaks, earth manifests itself out of nothing, ex nihilo, right? That this is the God who has ordered the stars in the universe, the the universe which is ever expanding in His glory. All of this is His, and we should rightly estimate Him, right? We should think of Him rightly. That's where knowledge begins. It begins in acknowledging God for who He is, in estimating God rightly. And if we don't have right knowledge, then we won't enjoy or practice wisdom. And so do you begin to see what what we're doing here? We want wisdom, but wisdom won't come if we don't operate from right knowledge, objective truth, and that objective truth cannot be divorced from, nor is it found apart from God in His sovereign and wondrous glory. And so if you're in the room this morning and you're not a Christian, just know that some of the things that we say today may sound counterintuitive, and that's because we're starting from different places. We're starting from a fear and a reverence of God, which we believe leads us to objective truth that is then practiced in ways that are honorable and good, described as wisdom. And that's the connection between knowledge and wisdom, right? Knowledge is simply that. It's objective. It's, it's true. It's good. And wisdom is when that knowledge is actually practiced, when it's actually put into use, right? And this is why I think ultimately that the Proverbs are so timely for us. In in our culture, 
We have a wealth of knowledge. In fact, many of us have been sitting in churches for many, many years where we have talked a lot about doctrine, and rightly so. And yet, if our doctrine, if our objective truth and our appeal to it is separated from wisdom, if it is separated from right practice, then it has not come to its fulfillment. We're not walking wisely when we have knowledge that we do not act upon. When we have the knowledge of God's grace, but we do not walk in God's grace. When we have the knowledge of God's sovereignty, but we do not walk in trust in God's sovereignty. We're not walking wisely. And so, if knowledge is knowing what point B is, wisdom is what draws the course to point B charting that path safely. And yet Solomon is very clear that neither knowledge nor wisdom will be ours apart from the Lord. And so with that said, let's jump to Proverbs 15. And starting in verse 16, it says this, Better is a little with the fear of the Lord than great treasure and trouble with it. Better is a dinner of herbs where love is than a fattened ox and hatred with it. And so this is very simple. And this is what I love about the Proverbs is that it it almost gives me an out in that generally the meaning is very clear. It's better to have less and to be in the presence of God than to have more and to be surrounded by hatred, right? Better is little with the fear of the Lord and great treasure than great treasure and trouble with it. Better is a dinner of herbs where love is than a fattened ox and hatred with it. And so, brothers and sisters, what a blessing it is to find ourselves in a room where love is, right? Some of us have that place. Maybe we call to mind right now. We know that that room that is comprised with those people that we know if we walk into it, we're loved and we're accepted and it doesn't matter what came in the day before and it doesn't matter what's going to come after. In that moment, there is peace. For some of us, it's our families. For some of us, it's our families. For some of us, it's not. For some of us, by God's grace, it's our neighborhood parish. Brothers and sisters, it is a great blessing to walk into a room like that where even if material blessing is lacking, love abounds, and it abounds to the joy of those who find themselves there. Now, as members of of God's family, we're called not only to experience love from God, but to extend that love to others, right? That's what we see in verse 16. It's better to be with the Lord in God's presence, loving Him and to have little, but it's also better to be in a place where love is and to have less than to be in a place where there is great wealth, where there are many good things, tasty, feastful things, and to be a surrounded by hatred. So we're called to experience love from God, but also to extend that love to others. We have this as clear knowledge. Now, here's the thing. If we've sat in church for any length of time, this is not a foreign concept to us, right? Jesus himself responding to the question, what is the greatest commandment? What does he say? Love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, with all your mind, and the second is like it. Love your neighbor as yourself. He says, all of the law and the prophets can be summarized in those two phrases. 
Love the Lord, love your neighbor. We're called to create this environment where in spite of whether or not material blessing abounds, love abounds to the joy of those present. So love is a necessary overflow of the Christian life. Love that expresses itself clearly, unequivocally, and compellingly to the world around it. In a very real sense, brothers and sisters, the church is meant to be the place where a plate of vegetables is better than a steak dinner because love is there. I'm not trying to hate on you if you're vegetarian, but the Bible is true and meat is objectively better. (laughs) Praise Jesus. There's the thing, again, this is nothing, nothing that I'm saying right now is novel or revolutionary in the sense that we've heard it before, that we're called to be this place. Now, here's my question. If we know this to be true, we should be asking ourselves, how do we apply this? How do we walk in wisdom in such a way that this place becomes the place where love abounds to the joy of those who are there. I think this chapter in Proverbs provides us with one very simple and practical way that we can do this. Now, here's the thing. We could talk a long time about what it means to love people, and there are a thousand different applications, probably more, and we're just going to look at one today. And I'm doing so in hopes that we will exercise that one thing rather than strive after a thousand, knowing that we'll be growing for a long time. But here's the practical way that I think Proverbs leads us to walk in this kind of love, to cultivate, to foster this kind of environment. And that is through our gentleness, in particular, through our gentle speech. Starting in verse 1 of chapter 15, it says, A soft answer, which is also translated a gentle answer, turns away wrath, but a harsh word stirs up anger. The tongue of the wise commends knowledge, but the mouths of fools pour out folly. So how is love applied through our gentle speech? Here here we're told that a gentle answer is like water that quenches a quarrel, but that a harsh word is like oil that adds fuel to the fire. Now, here's the thing. I'm I'm not delivering this sermon because I've listened to a lot of us talk to one another and I think we're particularly poor at this. I'm delivering this first and foremost because it's a self-confession. It's a self-confession that my natural inclination, and, and I'm assuming if it's mine that it's probably a lot of ours, it's my natural inclination to give in to my irritation, to give in to self-justification, to insist on having the last word, to look at my conversations with other people as a moment to be one rather than a moment to serve, rather than a moment to build up peace, rather than a moment to showcase and put on display the gentleness inherent in the love of Jesus. In an argument, I am rarely, if ever, prepared to give an inch, much less to give an inch gently. 
All too often, I indulge in sarcasm at the expense of my friends, tearing them down for the sake of being found humorous, for the sake of a laugh, for the sake of momentary popularity while wounding underneath the surface. I'd rather lose a friend than miss scoring. And brothers and sisters, this is the way of the world in me, and I believe it's likely the way of the world in us. And yet the gospel sets before us Jesus' example, and it imbues us with His Spirit. And so we shouldn't be so quick to provoke people or to wound people. And according to the proverb before us, brothers and sisters, gentle words become healing words. And thus become a double victory. They're a double victory in the sense that we experience the peace and the gentleness that we've been given in Jesus. And we also begin the work of healing in the lives of our brothers and sisters and those who are around us. And so let's just be clear. What we see in these verses here are two things. We see that gentleness isn't to recede from conversation, to wave the proverbial white flag to remove ourselves from confrontation, but rather to enter into those things with a certain posture, with a certain tone. You see, we need verse 2 to remind us that there is an objective truth, right? That's what it says. The tongue of the wise commends knowledge. So to be wise is not to hold back truth, it is to give truth. But verse 1 reminds us how we are to give it gently so that we might turn away anger rather than stir it up. We continue reading in verse 4, it says this, A gentle tongue is a tree of life, but perverseness in it breaks the spirit. So gentleness in our speech not only turns away wrath, but it actually cultivates and builds up life. A gentle tongue is a tree of life. It invites something in. It turns away anger at the door and it invites in refreshing and reviving. It is the bouncer of our hearts, this gentleness, this gentleness of speech. And so it makes it very clear for us in verse 4 that we essentially have two options when we speak. We, we have the option of giving gently and rightly spoken words that bring life and healing, whereby we can sustain those around us, or we can speak harshly and critically, and cynically, and disdainfully, and we can break that spirit. Now, this isn't just something that we find in Proverbs, right? I'll read from James chapter 3. This is what he says, and he's, again, talking about wisdom and how wisdom is exercised, right? Who is wise and understanding among you? By his good conduct, let him show his works in the meekness, or you can read, gentleness of wisdom. 
But if you have bitter jealousy and selfish ambition in your hearts, do not boast and be false to the truth. This is not the wisdom that comes down from above, but is earthly, unspiritual, demonic. That's a strong word. For where jealousy and selfish ambition exist, there will be disorder and every vile practice. Verse 17. But the wisdom from above is first pure, then peaceable, gentle, open to reason, full of mercy and good fruits, impartial and sincere. And so, brothers and sisters, uh, when we gain knowledge... It is clearly to be exercised with this in mind, with this gentleness. There is a way in which we commend wisdom that we fail to commend it if we don't speak gently. 1 Corinthians 13, if I speak in the tongues of men and angels and yet have not loved, then I am like a clanging cymbal. Right knowledge, right? that is applied rightly, meaning wisely, leads to pure, peaceable, gentle, open to reason, full of mercy, good fruit, and all of those things within the context of those conversations are given irrespective of the recipient. Right? It says that it's impartial and that it is sincere. And so let's be clear about what gentleness is and what it isn't, right? Because gentleness is not just some faux kindness. You can wound and speak softly. Gentleness is genuine and sincere. Faux kindness is easy and requires little of us beyond a nice greeting. But gentleness is a sincere care and concern that leads us to carry burden rather than to add to it that leads us to relish in the truth, absolutely, to commend wisdom and knowledge, but to do so graciously rather than vindictively. After all, isn't this how Jesus has chosen to treat us? You see, Jesus was a man who was gentle in unprecedented measure to those that were least deserving there's a couple of examples we can call to mind, and, and we're not going to have time to read through all of them, but think of Jesus and the woman of Samaria. Jesus pulls up to a well, and he sees this woman there from Samaria who's sitting, minding her own business, and Jesus requests of her, give me a drink. Seems relatively inconspicuous, and yet, how does she respond? She says this, how is it that you, a Jew, ask for a drink from me, a woman of Samaria? For Jews have no dealings with Samaritans. She says, wait a minute, aren't you supposed to be one of those arrogant, we're God's people guys? That's always looking down on me, calling me a Gentile, outside of the faith, outside of God's covenant, outside of his love, outside of your precious inheritance? Why are you talking to me? Jesus says, if you knew the gift of God and who it is that is saying to you, give me a drink, you would have asked him and he would have given you living water. And the woman replies. And she replies, not super excited. 
She's just kind of like, I don't have time to deal with your stuff, Jesus. Like, get to the point. Responds a little harshly. Responds a little bit pridefully. And yet Jesus in that moment does not say, don't you know who I am? Listen, I gave you the honor of talking to you. I'm trying to tell you about living water here, so you need to just shut up and listen. He doesn't do that. Right? He continues to speak with her. What does he say? He says, everyone who drinks of this water will be thirsty. He continues to explain himself. But whoever drinks of the water that I will give him will never be thirsty again. The water that I will give him will become in him a spring of water welling up to eternal life. And it's in Jesus' patience and his gentleness, and not in the absence of truth, which we'll find out in just a minute, that, that something becomes compelling for this woman of Samaria. So much so that she says this, Sir, give me this water. All right, I'm, over, all right, I'm hearing you out. I'm hearing you out, Jesus. What does Jesus go on to say? He says, Go call your husband and come here. The woman answered him, I have no husband. White lie, right? Jesus says this, You are right in saying I have no husband, for you have had five. And the one you now have is not your husband. What you have said is true. And so again, Jesus is being utterly gentle here with this woman of Samaria. And what we come to find out is that she does come to faith and goes on to tell other people about this Jesus. And that is glorious and wonderful and good. But listen, his gentleness is not divorced from the truth. It's simply packaged in gentleness in such a way that it really can't be denied. It's above reproach, right? There's no distraction of harshness. There's no distraction of cynicism or sarcasm, right? It's just purely gentle truth and wisdom given graciously by Jesus to which this woman of Samaria responds. It happens again in John chapter 8. When there's a woman that's about to be stoned for adultery. Right? I think we remember this story. And what happens? The, the men who are about to stone her say, Now in the law of Moses it is commanded to us to stone such women. So what do you say, Jesus? And he says, Let him who is without sin be the first among you to throw a stone at her. And Jesus essentially just starts drawing in the ground, waiting Anytime you guys want to start, looks up, and everybody's gone. And he says, woman, where are they? Has no one condemned you? And she said, no one, Lord. And Jesus said, neither do I condemn you. Go. But it doesn't stop there, does it? Go and sin no more. So again, Jesus is unapologetic about right knowledge, and about practicing that knowledge wisely, walking in the truth, right? Not just assenting to it, but walking in it. He's unapologetic about calling her to that, but he's done it in such a way and packaged with such gentility, with such kindness, such care, and genuine concern for this woman that it's compelling. This happens also with the disciples post-resurrection, right? Like in, in Jesus's maybe most opportunistic moment to just be a jerk. He chooses not to be. Right? He didn't come back and, oh, hey, guys, what's up? You guys having fun? Uh, dead for three days, but I'm back like I said I would be, so surprise, surprise. 
You morons heard me say it more times than once. I said I was coming back. Here you are doing your, whatever you're doing. And Peter, you denied me three times, you loser. Gosh, how am I going to build this whole church thing on your idiocy? You see, this comes naturally to me. I didn't have to look at my notes at all for that. Right, that was, I mean, I'm just telling you, if it was me in that moment, like those are the things that I would have been saying. You're wrong and you should feel bad that you're wrong. And yet, what does Jesus do? He says, Peter, yeah, you, you were wrong, but I'm going to build my church on you. What does he say to Thomas? Does he walk in and say, look, man, gosh, can't you just believe all these other people? Eleven people said they saw me. You can't believe, what's the deal? No. He walks in and he says, touch, feel, it's me. I'm here with you and for you. And in Matthew 28, even to the end of the age. And Jesus continues to, to give us this kind of gentle invitation to the truth, right? Matthew eleven twenty eight through verse 30 says this, Come to me, all you who are weary and burdened, and I will give you rest. All of you, take up my yoke and learn from me, because I am gentle and humble in heart, and you will find rest for yourselves. For my yoke is easy, and my burden is light. And so here's what we have before us. We have before us this all-sovereign, all-knowing, great and glorious God whom we should reverently and rightly fear at His awesome and tremendous power that at a moment's notice could blink and nothing would exist anymore. And yet, that is a truth that is accompanied by God in the flesh, Jesus, who tells us to come to Him when we're burdened and when, when, when we're weary so that He might give us rest because, precisely because, He is gentle and lowly in heart. So, brothers and sisters, I don't know about you, but I am weary I am weary of our public discourse. It is exhausting. It is a public discourse in which everybody is trying to get a leg up. Everyone believes, one, that they are right, and two, they want to be right vindictively so. So not only are you wrong, but you're horrible because you're wrong. There is a culture of, of sarcasm and cynicism and disgust and disdain and intolerance, which is odd in the age which is supposed to be the age of tolerance. There is a venom and a bite with which we speak to one another, often behind a keyboard because we're cowards. And I'm weary, brothers and sisters. 
And I'm not only weary, but I'm also leery that that culture would influence and infect the culture of the church, that we might be a place where that narrative doesn't cease but continues. Because brothers and sisters, harsh words stir up anger. Perverseness in our speech breaks the spirit. And we've been called to a gentleness that is the very definition of who Jesus is. He doesn't say, because I have gentleness. He says, because I am gentle and lowly in heart. And so we're invited this morning, brothers and sisters, to rest from that yoke that our culture has foisted upon us, to come into a place where, yeah, we may only have vegetables to eat, but you know what? It's way better than being out there. To come into a place where we love one another well and in such a way that it is expressed through our gentleness with one another. And so let's conclude simply with with these two things. Let us cease to speak harshly with one another, brothers and sisters. For love dwells among us by the Spirit. And when we do this, we will provide what is truly a safe space. Not a place where brokenness is overlooked, but where that brokenness is tended to gently and with healing in mind. Rather than rejection. And let us cease to speak harshly with outsiders because it is in our devotion to gentleness and to the love that compels it that we will be a refreshing and reviving drink amidst the toxic sludge of our current public discourse. May we be the proverbial oasis in the desert, the wasteland that is our current cultural conversation. In the name of Jesus, and for the fame of Jesus, and so that people might experience rest and a yoke that is light, because Jesus and his people are gentle and lowly in heart. Let's pray. Father, thank you so much, again, for the opportunity to be gathered together as your people. Lord, thank you that because of that, we have entered into this space, God, where even A small plate of vegetables is better than the steak dinner because here there is love, because here is a congregation that has been made and is being made into the image and the likeness of Jesus who is gentle and lowly in heart. Father, I pray that you would make it so this morning. I pray, Lord, that we would truly be that set-apart peoples, that place that is utterly and compellingly different so that we might enjoy the peace that dwells there. We love you. We pray all these things in Jesus' name. Amen.